This past Thursday at 3.15 Eastern Time, St. Luke's joined with hundreds of churches and schools across the nation in ringing our bells for four consecutive minutes. We did it to ring each minute for one year of the Civil War because we know that it was on April the 9th, 1865, that General Lee surrendered to General Grant and it would start the effect of the war, of the Civil War, coming to an end within the next 30 days. It all had started April the 12th, 1861. April the 12th, 1861, the very first shots were fired in the Civil War at Fort Sumner there in Charleston Harbor. Everybody had predicted a, a very quick end to the war. The South said, we know we'll whip those Yankees in less than six months and the North knew they were going to whip the South in six months. The end of the war came, the surrender of Lee to Grant, on April the 9th, 1865, four years later. Four years later, 620,000 people lay dead. More than a million casualties. 620,000 is more people to die in that war than all of our other wars combined. One-fifth of the population of the South died. One-twelfth of the population in the North died. Every family knew grief. And finally, we came to the end. We came to the end because Grant had taken Richmond, the Confederate capital, and General Lee, who was in charge of the Army of, the, uh, of Northern Virginia, the Confederate Army, he had his troops who were starving. He knew that he was cut off. They could continue to fight, but why? There had already been so much bloodshed. Why should more people keep dying? His people were ready to fight. They didn't want to give up. But, Grant, but, but Lee saw what was the head. And so it was that he sent word to Grant that he wanted to talk about surrender. They would meet there on the 9th of April at Appomattox. There, Grant would sit down and he would write out the conditions of surrender, right there. But he would follow the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. Because you see, there were so many people in the North talking about, what do we do with the South? And Lincoln was very clear. Non-negotiable. For Lincoln, it was, there will be no war trials. There will be no hangings. There will be no firing squads. No people ask Lincoln, how are you going to treat those Southerners when we finally win? And he said, I will treat them as if they've never been away. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment and think about this. I mean, how different is this than how most uprisings will end anywhere in the world? If you have a revolt, if you have a revolution, an uprising, and finally it is put down, what happens to the leaders? They're put to death. People are sent to prison. There's retribution. And there were many people in the North who wanted exactly that. But Lincoln said, no. No, we are fellow Americans. He made it clear, if you will lay down your arms and swear allegiance to the Union, then go home. We're good. We start again. That was such a unique spirit. And it was that spirit that would be so significant in healing our country. It has been said that April 1865 was truly the month that saved America 
not because of the surrenders, but because of the way we accepted the surrenders. Grant was very clear. April the 9th, they signed the papers. But he wanted a formal ceremony. And it took three days to get it organized until April the 12th, 1865. Today, 150 years ago. 150 years ago, they would have the formal surrender of Lee's army, 28,000 soldiers. And what they did was they went outside of Appomattox and they lined the streets, these dirt, dusty streets. And there, the Union soldiers were on both sides lining them. And then here came all of the Confederate soldiers walking there in unison in their formation. They were supposed to come in and there they would finally stop and turn and face the Union soldiers and they would stack their rifles. They would stack their munitions. They would fold their flags and lay them down for the last time. And as these Confederate soldiers are coming in, suddenly unbeknownst to anyone else, but it was General Chamberlain of the North who called for attention and the Union soldiers snapped to attention Rifles to their shoulder, giving a salute. It's the kind of thing you did when somebody important was passing by. It's the kind of thing you'd do for the president when he was coming by. And now the Union soldiers stood at attention with the salute for all these Confederate soldiers that were coming by. They said there was not a stir of word or a rolling drum no one moved or said anything as these Confederate soldiers came to lay things down and say, it is over. There were no hangings. There was a salute. There was no prison. There was honor. There was no way to put people down and humiliate them. There was an embrace. How different it could have been. But because of what was, we held together as a nation and took seriously what does it mean to bind up the wounds. When those Confederate soldiers stood there on that dirt road, looking into heaven, their first thought was it come to an end. Their dream had come to an end. The war had ended and it was not the way they wanted. They folded their flags. It was over. But that day they also understood something else. It was a beginning. You see, every ending is also a beginning. And they understood standing there in those dirt roads, they were being given a new beginning. Many of them had said, let's go fight with the other generals. Let's go participate in guerrilla warfare. But it was their general, Robert E. Lee, who spoke up and said, no. No. It is over. Go home. Go home. And if you will make as good a citizen as you have been a soldier, you will do well. And I will be proud of you. That day when they stood on that dusty road, looking into the heavens, these soldiers understood they had been given a new beginning. And it was time to walk down that road into their future. As I thought about the significance of this past week here on our country, the significance of today, I couldn't help but think about some disciples standing 
on a dirt road outside of Jerusalem because their world had been turned upside down and hadn't worked out the way they planned either. For seven weeks now, their life had been on a roller coaster. Seven weeks before they'd come into Jerusalem, people were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. Jesus had come and they believed to raise an army, to fight the Romans, to overthrow the Roman Empire, to establish the kingdom of Israel. But it didn't happen. In a few days, Jesus would be betrayed and then crucified. He would be dead. And then on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. And ever since that Easter morning, then they, for the next 40 days, they begin to see Jesus in the most unsuspecting places, in the upper room, on the road to Emmaus, beside the, the Sea of Galilee, fixing breakfast in the morning. No, they begin to see Jesus in all of these places. And now it came 40 days later, they're standing there on the road outside of Jerusalem, looking into heaven. And they say to Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You are my witnesses. And it says Jesus was then being taken up into the clouds. And as they're standing there in the road looking into heaven, suddenly two men in white dazzling apparel, two angels stand beside them and say, O men of Galilee... What are you doing standing here in the middle of the road looking into heaven? I mean, you can just hear the implications. Why are you standing here wasting your time? Get on with it and do something. The end has come. It didn't work out the way you planned. But do you understand you've been given a road into the future? Do you understand that God is calling you to go forward and to do something new and significant? Do you understand God is calling you to greatness? This morning I want to begin a new sermon series called To Greatness. And what I want us to think about is how the disciples in the light of Easter felt called to go out and do something significant with their lives. They were not going to let the past hold them back, their failures. They weren't going to be afraid of the future and what might happen. No, at this point... They felt God was calling them to have an impact on the world. To go out and to do something for the first time. To preach, to teach, to heal in ways they had never done before. Go do something for the first time and let God use you to impact the world. They were called to greatness. And I believe that we as Jesus' disciples hear those same words. That we are called to be the people who go out into the world to find ways to share God's love and to bring hope. Now, I'm not talking about greatness in the ways of power and wealth and fame. I'm talking about the greatness that each one of us can do. Wherever you live, whatever you do, God can use you for greatness. Is there somebody in your work, somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood who seems so lonely, you need to give them a word of, of hope? Is there someone you know who needs to feel loved? Is there someone who's barely hanging on, who needs a word of encouragement? God can use you. God can use you 
as the person who shares his love and brings hope in this world, you're called to greatness. For the next seven weeks, that's what we're going to look at from many different sides. But I want us to begin this morning by looking at these disciples standing on this road outside of Jerusalem. And I think there's two important things to see. First of all, I believe the disciples were ready to hear this call to greatness because they had had to confront death. They had been with Jesus in Jerusalem. He was crucified and he died. Whenever you confront death, it always makes you stop and think about how to live life. That's what it does for me. I was at a funeral yesterday for Reverend Linda Brinkworth's father. He was a wonderful man. It was a beautiful service. But whenever I come out of a funeral, whenever I conduct a funeral myself, I can tell you that I always come away and I, it makes me think about my mortality. It makes me remember there is a limited amount of time here on earth. Life is short. And it's when you think about that then it affects how you live. For the disciples, they had confronted death with Jesus' death, and so now they were thinking about the moment. And it's because they experienced the resurrection that they had the power to say, now we're going to live in the moment in a meaningful way. That's really where I want us to start this whole series, is thinking about what does it mean to live in this moment? To accept the fact that time is short and I want to live this moment in a meaningful way. You know, if you were here last Sunday for Easter, you heard me talking about Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill, you remember, she was the young lady who was 18 years old living there in Indiana when she got the diagnosis of a brain tumor. Inoperable, no hope, no cure, and they told her she had basically two years to live. If you were here and you remember the story about Lauren, then it may have perked your attention on Friday when you heard that Lauren Hill died. She just died Friday. The doctors originally said that they weren't sure she'd make it to Christmas. But Lauren was a fighter. She made it to Easter. She died on Friday. What I loved about the Lauren Hill story was, here you have an 18-year-old kid who was suddenly told, you got two years, maybe. She didn't get two years. You got two years. And when she was interviewed, she said, I've never thought about sitting down and quitting. Just because I've been told I'm going to die in two years, I never thought about sitting down and quitting on life. It made me spurred on to live life in this moment now. Her whole mantra became, never give up. Not believing I'm never going to get up and be healed, the idea of never give up was, I'm not going to give up on living life. I'm going to live this moment fully. And so what we saw from Lauren was this incredible passion. She wanted to play basketball. And she played that year with her team the best she could. And then she went to college and the coach let her play with that team and they got her into the game. No, she had a dream of playing basketball and it was amazing the way she pushed and she played. But she was clear, this isn't just about me. Now, I saw a video this week on YouTube I'd not heard of, and it showed Lauren before the diagnosis, and she was saying, you know, my dream in life is to be a coach. I want to be a coach so that I can teach and inspire and encourage people and help them to be the person God created them to be. When time got short, 
That didn't change the dream. That's what I'm supposed to do. To teach and inspire and encourage. And so that's what she did with her team in high school. It's what she did with her team at college. She started going to the children who had terminal brain cancer, who couldn't put into words what was happening like she could. She decided she wanted to help raise money and create awareness for pediatric terminal brain cancer like hers. She raised a million and a half dollars in a matter of months. When they interviewed her, she said, I want my life to matter. Don't we all? We want our lives to matter. As they were reflecting on her life this week, I saw one commentator who made the interesting observation. He wound up saying, you know, dying is the easy part. Everybody accomplishes that. The difficult thing is living well. Lauren lived well because she understood her time was short and yet she was going to live fully in those moments. To live fully in the moment to seek to do those things that really did matter. If you knew that your time on this planet was short, how would you choose to spend that time? Well, let me tell you, It is. It is short. And only those who fully understand that are determined to live well in the moment. The disciples understood it. They had confronted death in Jesus. They found a hope in the resurrection. They were ready to hear the call to greatness. What will you do with your moment Secondly, what the disciples discovered was God wanted to have an impact on the world through them. The disciples expected Jesus to change the world. Think about it. They're standing there on this dusty road outside of Jerusalem and they look at Jesus and say, Will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? That's where they were seven weeks ago. Seven weeks earlier, when they came to Jerusalem with Palm Sunday, they thought, Jesus is going to form an army and fight the Romans. He's going to establish the kingdom of Israel. He dies. He's crucified. He's raised from the dead. They see Him. And seven weeks later on the road, the question again is, so now will you establish the kingdom of Israel? And look at how Jesus answers that question. You are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. I believe Jesus was saying very clearly to his disciples, I'm going to change the world through you. It's not about waiting for me to do something. I'm going to work through you. If you will be my witnesses and go out here and share my love, we will bring hope in this world. I believe those are the words that God speaks to each of us today on the other side of Easter. It's a word that says it does not matter what has gone before. We talked about laying down the guilt last week. It does not matter what has gone before. We get a new beginning. And you don't have to worry about what the future may hold. Truth of the matter is, who knows how long we have. You have this moment. And it's in this moment 
that God wants to use you. You are my witness. You are my witness. You have the power to share God's love and bring hope in the world. At home, where you work, in your community, around the world. God wants to use you. The question is, are we passionate? Are we committed? Do we really want God to use us to help change the world? You know, recently I've been reading a fascinating book. It's entitled Love Does by Bob Goff. It's been a great book. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's a book in which he tells a lot of his true stories from his life. Now, Bob Goff is a lawyer. His great passion in life was to be a lawyer. He really believed God was calling him to be a lawyer so he could help people and change the world. He's a man of great faith. Well, it turns out that he has formed his own law firm, and he did very well. But he's now helped to start Restore International, which works in India and Uganda, helping their lawyers who go in to help children who are being abused and misused and slave trade and They help to prosecute the people who do this. They give a voice to children who have no voice. They've started schools to try to help educate. They've made such a difference in some of these most difficult places. And he does incredible things here in the United States. Bob has really worked to let God use him, believing as a lawyer he could help people and make a difference. But how he got to there really is kind of a fascinating story in his life. You see, when Bob went and got his undergraduate degree, he really didn't know what he wanted to do. He lived in California, and the thing he did best was surf. And he loved surfing. And he said, when I was about to graduate, my grades were a little thin. And he says, I'm getting along in my, my end of my career, and they're in undergraduate school, and I came and told my parents, I want to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to law school. He said they were stunned. I mean, they were stunned. I'd never talked about that before. But I said, I've been praying. I really believe God wants me to be a lawyer, that God will use me to help make an impact in this world and to bless life. I'm going to go to law school. He said his mom and dad, they were educators. They had been collecting brochures about vocational schools to give to him. (laughs) So they really were shocked when he came in and said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And he said, now to be a lawyer, you know you've got to take the LSAT. And he said, so I I went out and bought a book for $7.98. It was about an inch thick. It had 105 pages. He said, I read it through three times, and I felt I was prepared for the test. And he said, the day the LSAT came, and he said, I I showed up, and boy, when we got ready, man, you could just tell there were some smart kids there. Some of them were just sharp and preppy. You could tell they were smart. And then there were the kids who were there that you could tell had been cramming all night long, and they were still in their pajamas. But he said, you could tell they were smart. And everybody stood around and said, so what class did you take to prepare for this? And he said, class? Yeah, yeah, did you take Princeton Review? Did you take Kaplan? Oh, they named off three, four different ones. Was yours two months, three months? He said, class? He said, I could tell that the material they studied studied must have been five foot high. And he said, I had a book that was one inch thick. He said, I walked over and I threw it in the trash can and I knew I was woefully unprepared for this test. But I thought, I've already paid for it. I might as well take it. And so he went in and took the LSAT. 
And sure enough, he waited for his grades. And when they came, he said, the test crushed me. Crushed me. But I decided I'd taken it. I still needed to apply for law school. So he said, I found all the law schools that I could apply for. And I filled out the application. And I sent in my check. I knew that for so many schools, I was making a small contribution to the law school. (laughs) And sure enough... The people took his application, they cashed his check, and soon they began to receive no, 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 no. However, not all schools said no. Some didn't say anything at all. But there was a few law schools that really were places of integrity, and they sent his application and check back. They didn't even want to cash it. They knew it was hopeless, so they just returned the whole thing. Finally, he said, I had hot all nose or not heard, and it was now getting close to time to start law school. And he said, I would not take no for an answer. This is what God was calling me to do. I was convinced I was going to go to law school. So he knew the one school he wanted to go to, and so he made an appointment with the dean, and he showed up. And then he went back and walked into the dean's office and said, Hello, my name is Bob Goff. I've applied to your law school. I haven't heard back. But I want to be a lawyer. I want to help change the world. And so I need to come to school. The dean didn't say anything. He just looked at him and said, What you need to understand is, I I didn't hear yes. I didn't hear no. I wouldn't put on a wait list. If I don't get into law school, I can't graduate. And if I can't graduate, I can't be a lawyer to help people. And he said, finally, the dean got up and came around and shook my hand and said, You know... This is a really very competitive school and we have to make hard choices all the time among so many different qualified candidates and it's really a hard thing that we have to do. He said he put my hand on the shoulder and there was no mistaking the body language. He was moving me towards the door. He said we got to the door and he said it's so very nice to meet you and shook my hand and started to close the door. And he said, when he did, I put my foot out and stuck it in between the door. And I said, sir, I know you have the power to let me in this law school. All you have to say is, go buy your books. And I'm in. It's that simple. I just want to hear those words. And the dean smiled and shook his hand and said, thanks for coming by. And closed the door. And Bob said he went out in the office and there he sat down on a bench outside the dean's office. It was about an hour later when the dean came out to go somewhere and looked over and said, What are you doing here? I'm waiting to hear you say, Go buy your books. (laughs) The dean kind of smiled and walked on by. He said he kept sitting there. And every time the dean would come, the dean would go, he'd say, I'm waiting to hear you. Say those words. Tell me to go buy my books. It didn't happen that day. But Bob was back the next day. And on the second day, he was sitting early in the morning when he came walking in. I'm waiting to hear you tell me. Go buy my books. By now, you could tell he looked a little perturbed. And every time he went out and came in, he was there to speak up. I'm waiting to hear you. Say the words. All day long. Finally, he wasn't looking at Bob anymore when he walked by him out there. He did his second day. And then a third day, and then a fourth day. He said, by the fourth day, I knew this guy's schedule. 
I knew when he would come in. I knew when he went to lunch. I knew when he went to the gym to work out and come back. I knew when he took bathroom breaks. I knew it. And I was always there to stand up to say every time he went by, just tell me to go buy my books. Sometimes he would look and smile. Sometimes he would not. Sometimes he just walked by. Finally, the first day of law school came. And Bob said he knew it was going to be that day. He got all dressed up nice and fancy. He showed up at school, and there were all these smart kids. I mean, you could just tell. And they were so excited about beginning law school, and they were talking. You could just see they were smart. And they all went off to class, and I waited for the dean. And that day, I never saw him. Not once. But he was there the second day of law school, sitting out there. And that day, he saw the dean a dozen times. And every time he walked by, he said, You got the power. Say the words. Tell me to go buy my books. A dozen times. And then the third day, and then the fourth day. He said, by the fourth day, I began to think, I'm falling behind in law school. (laughs) And I haven't even been admitted yet. (laughs) By the fifth day, he said, finally, my hopes were starting to dim. By the fifth day, I was beginning to feel, maybe, maybe this isn't going to happen. And he said it was late in the afternoon. He heard the door open and out came the dean. He said, I looked at my watch and I could tell it was too early for him to go home. And then I realized he was walking over towards me. And he walked over towards me and Bob said, I started to get up and say what I've always been saying, but I, I just looked in his eyes and something looked different. And I didn't say a word. And he said the dean walked over to me And he just stood there in silence for the longest time looking me in the eye. And then finally he said four words that would change my life. He gave me a wink and said, go buy your books. And I did. And he worked so hard to graduate so that he could bless life by being a lawyer. I think of those disciples standing on that road outside of Jerusalem looking into heaven when Jesus spoke four words that changed their life. You are my witness. You are my witness. And if you are committed and passionate and willing to do something for the first time, you're going to have an impact on this world. You are my witness. And I believe those are the four words that God speaks to each of us today. To each of us. You. You. You are my witness. Not the person sitting next to you. Not the person in front of you. You. God says, you are my witness. You are the ones who can make an impact on the world. You are the one who shares God's love and brings hope. You are called to greatness.
It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.